go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, uh, we do just commit this morning to you. Uh, We want to put you at the center of uh, not only our lives, but everything that we do as a community. Uh, We want to not forget you, and we want to praise you. And uh, we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we, uh, we talked last week at length, kind of a whirlwind tour through John chapter 6. And the real quick pieces of that story go like this. It's Jesus multiplies these loaves and feeds 5,000 people. And then his disciples go out on, on the lake. Jesus walks out to the lake, and that's when Peter gets out on the water and kind of walks on water for a little bit until he takes his eyes off of Christ kind of loses his faith, in the midst of his fear, loses his faith, begins to sink. And we talked about the relationship between faith and fear, that, that faith really does emerge out of a, a backdrop or a context of fear. Um, it's not easy to trust when so much is riding on it. And the more that is riding on things, okay, if you're a, a husband or a father and your family's well-being is at stake, or your health, your very life is at stake, or, I mean, just think of anything big where the stakes are high, all of a sudden it raises it, and there's going to be fear there. It's hard to trust. And so real genuine faith comes out of a backdrop of fear. And then we talked about how when they got to the other side of the the lake, this whole kind of progression, Jesus talks to these multitudes, and they're asking him these questions, and he just dismisses their questions and goes right at the heart of the issue. and says, you guys are here for food. You're here for food. And what you should be here for is me. I'm, I am the person that should be the priority for you because I have to do with everything and the eternal. Um, you look at me first and all this other stuff will fall into place. But don't start with the stuff and then come to me as if I'm a genie in the bottle. That's, that's not the right way that this should be going. And so they say, give us manna like Moses gave us manna. And Jesus says, I am the manna. I am the thing come from God that you're that's, uh, supposed to sustain you, right? And they're just like, and he's, and he's saying in a real awkward way, like, eat me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're just like, wow, um, really, Jesus? <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of crazy. Um, and so we pick it up at the back end of chapter 6, and we kind of read this. It says this, on hearing that, that strange teaching, Many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. But let's go back to that phrase right before it. It's Jesus. No, I'm sorry. Right? Yeah, you can see it right there. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Jesus has got these multitudes. They've come to him, right? But in the, in the course of this conversation, it's, it's apparent that they're not really in agreement. They're not really um, going to follow him. And so they're going to depart. Many of these people depart. 
And Jesus is saying in the middle of this, you know what? Um, God has to enable you to follow me. It's not up there anymore. Unless the Father enables you, um, you're not going to follow me. It's a really interesting statement. And so that, that verse there really uh, usually launches us into a, a theological debate. And the theological debate is between what's called Calvinism and what's called Arminianism. Uh, one after John Calvin and the other one uh, after Jacob Arminius uh, or Jacob if you're Dutch. I'm Dutch and I don't even know if that's true. Is it true? I think it's true. I think Jacob, right? But uh, Arminius, and Arminius was really repackaging a lot of things from a guy by the name of Pelagius who lived in the time of Augustine, the, the, the late 300s, early 400s. And so here's these two different doctrines of how people come to God, of really how they get saved. Now the one, Calvinism says this, that God coming after you, now we're going to put our philosophy hats on, and, and it's okay if, if, if this just makes your eyes roll in the back of your head, because it's, it's cool stuff. Um, Calvinism basically says that God's grace coming after you is both necessary for your salvation and sufficient for your salvation. It's necessary and sufficient. That's what's called irresistible grace in the five points of Calvinism. Um, it's, the acronym is TULIP, okay? And the I is irresistible grace. That God's grace pursues you and it will find its way with you. You're going to come to God. Irresistible grace. God's grace is both necessary and sufficient. Now, Ar- um, Arminius wants to come along and he wants to say something slightly different. He wants to say God's grace is necessary but not sufficient. Necessary but not sufficient. You cannot come to God without God's grace being out there. That's necessary. But God's grace alone is not sufficient. You yourself, through a volition, have to join into that grace. And then the two of those together are both necessary and sufficient for your salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, we could talk about that for the next three days. And it would be me and like ten of you. And it would be a great time. Um, and I would be loving it, and, and we could go on and on about uh, Calvinism and Armenianism. But we're not going to. The, the debate between Calvinism and Armenianism, I have two problems with it. Okay? One, uh, we've been given one name under God by which to be called. And that's the name of Christ. We're Christians. We follow Christ. We don't follow Calvin. We don't follow Arminius. We... Those are, those are guys who have uh, theological tools that can help us understand Scripture. Now, I could give you arguments for which one I prefer, okay? But that's irrelevant. We, we've been given one name by which to be called, and that's Christian. We follow Christ. Secondly, the problem with that debate when we get too wrapped up in it is that the debate puts our eyes on something that we're going to talk about this morning at length. And that's the individual salvation of a particular person. And I think that's the wrong place for us to be looking. The Calvinist is looking at you or looking at themselves and saying, Am I elect? Am I one of the ones that God chose? Are you elect? Well, I see some sin in your life. Maybe you're not elect, you know. 
um, and they're looking at the person there, and the Armenian is looking at you and saying, did you choose God, and have you unchosen God, or was it a good uh, act of volition in the first place? Did it really take, you know, was it really what it appeared to be at some point? But they're looking at you, or they're trying to get you to make a decision, and we're all kind of focused here. And the focus really should be where? Jesus has got these multitudes, and he's saying, you know what, you were following me, but you're not really following me. And you know what, the real thing here is that God is involved in this, and he's making sure that there's going to be people following you. The real focus is simply this, that God's purposes and God's plans are going to succeed. God is going to always have people that he is going to work with that will follow him or will follow Christ um, from the New Testament period on. It's a lot like Elijah. And if you remember in 1 Kings 18 and 19, there's the prophet Elijah. And Elijah goes and he like kind of um, is having this duel with the priests of, of Baal. And it's, he says a real fascinating thing to the Israelites, Elijah does. He says, look, either you're going to worship God and God alone or you're going to worship um, the other gods. But make up your mind and decide what you're going to do. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. He's saying, look, one way or the other, but you can't have it both ways. It's a lot like Jesus when he says you, you can worship mammon, you know, the things of this world or money or your own life or your own pleasure or your own dreams or whatever, or God, but you, really, you can't serve two masters. And Jesus says, and we could say the same thing today. In your life, you, you're, gonna, you're either going to worship one thing or you're going to worship another. It's either going to be God and God alone at the center, or it's going to be this amalgam of things that really you've created, and then it's your own creation, your own little mini-religion that's, that's cobbled together out of a bunch of different strands that you're really serving. It's either or, right? So Elijah's out there. Um, they have this duel. We won't get into it too much, but it's, it's kind of trying to prove which God is really alive and all this stuff. And God kind of comes down and vindicates Elijah the whole thing really takes a toll on Elijah. Now a bunch of people want to kill him. He runs out to the desert, and he completely, like, just loses it. And it's like, oh, woe is me. I wish I was dead. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I think at some point we're always there. You know, we all get there at some point. Like, man, I'm just so exasperated. I'm exhausted. Man, I just, God, and we just kind of, like, flop backwards. Um, I think I've told the story before. I was praying one time and when I was in grad school, and it was after I married Tamara, and and I was like just whining so much to God in prayer. And I didn't realize it at the time because you just get caught up in it. And I kind of threw myself backwards like, woe is me. And I cracked my head open on the, the coffee table. And like four hours later, you know, after stitches and all this other stuff. And I was so worried about not being able to get all my papers and stuff done that day. And God kind of like showed me like, you know, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> quick, it's, you know, come on, Ken, right? But we, we get there. And so Elijah's there. And Elijah's like, man, I'm the only one. I'm the only one, God, that, that hasn't bowed a knee, that hasn't, in some sense, perverted myself, that hasn't betrayed you or walked away from you. I'm the only one left. It's, it's all me. I'm the real, true person in the midst of all this. And God's like, in the middle of telling him, like, look, settle down. I'm not done with you yet. You know, sleep, eat, rest, whatever. In the middle of that, God tells him, you know what? I've, I've kept for myself. A thousand people. A thousand is ten cubed. 
It's the number all throughout Scripture that's used for perfection, right? Complete. It's a complete number. And uh, God says, I've kept for myself just the amount of people I wanted to that have not bowed a knee to these other gods. You don't worry about that side of things. You do what I've asked you to do. You let me take care of my, my people, my followers, the ones that I'm going to reach out to and, and call by name, work with, that are going to be my family. I've got that side of it. You don't worry about it. And I think we see in this passage Jesus kind of in the same thing. He's not worried about the masses of people that may or may not be called by God's name. That's God who's going to worry about it. God's going to take care of it. His plans are going to succeed. His spirit will do what it needs to do so that God has his followers. Jesus' role in this is to preach truth. We'll be very clear with that. Jesus' role is to come and to proclaim an accurate message of the gospel, the good news, which is God has provided me as the way for you to be connected to him. What you really need is not food in your belly. What you really need is me, a relationship that's going to sustain you. Like in John 15, a vine, a, a branch that's in a vine, and there's this nourishing relationship that sustains the branch, and then it's going to bear much fruit. You need to be connected to me. You need to abide in me, all this other stuff. Really, no matter how intense it feels, really doesn't matter much. You got to get the priorities right. Jesus' role is to proclaim the kingdom, to pro- proclaim the gospel accurately. Okay, do we get that? Okay, now here's where I want to take and detour a little bit and give some context to where we're at in America with the way we see Christianity and salvation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the Second Great Awakening and see what was going on and then a shift that took place that has completely changed the atmosphere of the culture for the last 160 plus years um, of Christianity. Okay, the Second Great Awakening, I think we've got a timeline and we'll just, we can just leave this up for a long time, right? Um, the Second Great Awakening begins, depending on who you're talking to, 1798, 1799, 1800, um, and it begins with this movement of God, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, what makes this a great awakening? What makes this a movement of God? A couple different things. One, that it wasn't tied to one denomination. It was, it was trans-denominational. Two, that it was this radical change to where movements and, and uh, I mean, radical life change and social change and change with the way people see the world and how they're seeing their own resources and the goals to which they have and missions and onward. It wasn't centered around one man. It wasn't a personality cult. It was, there was no big name early on for, for the majority of the uh, Second Great Awakening. And the chief guys in it had all been preaching for 20 to 30 years. So if you're going to identify any key figures, they're guys that have been preaching for 20, 30 years. It's not like they're just all of a sudden a celebrity on the scene. These guys are just preaching week after week, um, normal guys. No ma- like massive kind of person in the middle of it with charisma. It's just solid leaders, pastors of churches, preaching what they've always preached, and then all of a sudden the results are different. 
There's this huge, ridiculous revival of people turning to God. Uh, lastly, that it was sustained for more than 30 years. The second great awakening as a movement of God is this, this huge change. It's transdenominational, not tied to one person. That, that's consistent when you look at uh, what was going on in people's lives and society. And that it was sustained for, for literally a couple of generations. Amazing thing, right? Amazing thing. So this is the second great awakening. Now, um, a couple different things we can point out here. Some people say 1800 is the start date, some, um, you know, different start dates. But one of the first big things was a revival in Kentucky. I had to put the name up there for you. Um, Credence Clearwater Revival Church in Kentucky holds the first of, of uh, like, great camp meeting. Now, the camp meetings were out on the, you know, what it did was it enabled people that are in the frontier or farmers that are, that are kind of radically out there alone to cobble themselves together into a meeting where different preachers from different denominations would get together. So it would be like if, if the Luis Palau thing we had a number of years ago. Instead of Luis Palau preaching, it would have been if a bunch of different pastors from this town were the ones that were preaching to these people, Okay. So it's, it's this great connection of different denominations. And it gave these people a chance to come into a meeting where otherwise they're kind of out on the outskirts. And so a lot of things begin to happen. Um, great time of celebration. Um, I'll just give you a couple different dates. 1807, across the ocean, would have been the date that the Slave Trade Act was passed with William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect. It was a group of guys that all went to Clapham Parish Church. They would pray three hours a day morning, afternoon, and evening, these guys revolutionized the British Empire. Uh, not just anti-slavery, but uh, animal rights activism, missions foundations, free trade in Sierra Leone. I mean, they just were about everything trying to make a difference because of their faith. I mean, amazing stuff. Prayer leading into these radical changes and things like that. Same kind of time frame. American Bible Society, 1816. Now, in 1824, Charles Finney is ordained. And we're going to kind of center on Finney, but what I wanted you to see was that Finney really is on the heels, and, and by 1830, 1831, the, the Second Great Awakening kind of ends. And as you can do the math, Charles Finney is beginning on, on the end, the tail end of this Great Awakening, right? Can you see that? Revisionist history, or, or whatever it is, has kind of made Charles Finney the father of the Second Great Awakening. Billy Graham will call Charles Finney the father of the Second Great Awakening. But Charles Finney clearly comes on the heels of it. You can see there's a lot of huge movements going on. Joseph Smith begins to organize the Mormon Church kind of in the same time period. The spirit of revival and change is, is kind of pervasive. And then the Second Great Awakening ends. Now, Finney, um, kind of being the key figure here, it all centers on him and I have a huge problem with him. Two huge problems. One, he, he just looks really scary. Um, two is what he did. And, and uh, we can go ahead and probably take, take that off for a minute here. Um, and I want to try and explain to you what Finney did. Before Finney, revival came this way. It came through two things. Through prayer and through the preaching or teaching of the word, theology. Good, solid Bible teaching. Those were the two ingredients. 
a lot of prayer, God, would you move, and faithful teaching of the gospel message. And then God would just choose in different seasons to all of a sudden move in a certain way. The, the language of those days was an outpouring of the Spirit that would lead to revival at different times. Okay? When Finney came, what he did was he made a huge philosophical shift. And he said the interesting thing about try and draw so that you can see, but someone making a a decision to follow Christ, you can really reduce that down to an act of the volition, direct quote. It's a a volitional act of the mind. Whenever you decide to do something, you really go back genealogy-wise, and it begins up here in your mind with a decision, right? So what Finney really said was, that's the key piece to conversion, is that moment of decision. It's not the following that, that takes place afterwards. It's really, it really begins with the decision in the mind. So if it's a decision in the mind, we can do that right here, right now. This morning at Antioch Church, we could do that right here, right now. Uh, at the, the meetings, we could do that right here, right now. And if we can do that, the evangelist now is in some sense in control of the result. So it's no longer prayer and preaching, and God is in control of what happens. It's now the evangelist can, can go for, or try and work toward, the result, which is you making a decision. Because we've reduced it down to that, right? And so what Finney begins to do is say, well, if that's the case, uh, I can help you get to that point of decision. So he began to invent what came to be known as the new methods. And the new methods, and you're very, you're very familiar with them, because 160-whatever year, years later, it, it's all we see in America. I mean, this changed American Christianity. It even changed, I mean, global Christianity. Finney did. And the new methods were this. If I create an environment that will play on your emotions, I can help you get to that point of decision. So we're going to draw the meetings out. We're going to pray for people by name. We're going to dim the lights. We're going to use certain songs that are no longer about theology or about truth, but they're about the emotions. And then we're going to try and invite you to come down up front to what Finney called the anxious seat. Um, we know it better as inviting you to come down to, what is this called? It's called, well, I mean, Summit High, maybe not called that, but it's the altar. So we're going to call you, it's an altar call. And you come down, and you're this, in this moment of emotion, it's the anxious seat. And we're going to call for you uh, by name, and we're going to call out people by name that aren't coming up. And we're going to really make the guilt and everything else rise to this level where it's going to help you make a decision to follow Christ. Now, the interesting thing that Finney's doing is what he's saying is, the decision is what we're going to go after, but the new methods really are trying to get you to make a decision to make a decision. Do you see that? I'd never seen that until yesterday. I was leaving Costco, and then I was like, ooh, I could draw this. Um, what the, the, what's in your mind here, the kind of thing Jesus is talking about, the kind of thing that, 
that the preachers were talking about was you leaving all, dying to self to follow Christ. You make that decision, everything changes. What Finney's doing is saying, I want you right now, because we're going to have this altar call, to make a decision to come forward about a decision to follow Christ. So your decision is really about a decision. And that's the, the object that, that we're going for here. And it loses everything beyond it. Does that make sense? The other thing Finney does is he says, if we can control this, this, this decision, if we can do it tonight with you, Sharon Wilkins, because they would do that, man. See how I'm doing that? I could, I could be good at this. Name people and all of a sudden they come alive, right? If I can do that with you, I can multiply that. Ooh, we just went from revival to revivalism. Do you see that shift? If I can do that with her, then I can do that with as many people, potentially, as I, as I can multiply it out for. So now the goal becomes, let's fill the room with as many people as we can, and let's try and throw the net out and catch as many as we can, because now we through effective use of these so-called new methods, can create a what? A revival. So therefore, when I'm driving to Clemson, um, I went to Clemson for college, and, and I lived in Virginia, and so I would drive the back way through the, the outskirts of Virginia and then drop down um, through the Appalachian Mountains, and I would, you know, back roads of, of Virginia. And I remember this one sign I saw one time, and I've never forgotten it. And it said, and this, this helps you understand the, the idea, the mentality. It said on the sign, revival this Friday night. Do you see the difference? It went from God is in control of doing what God's going to do to bring about his followers, to this Friday there's going to be a revival. Why? Because we're bringing in an evangelist. And he knows how to do this stuff. What's the stuff that he knows how to do? I'm going to be really frank with you. The stuff he knows how to do is manipulate you. It's Christian salesmanship. I want to read you some things from a Presbyterian, because I think I'm a lover of history. If you don't love history, um, other than being taken outside and shot, <laughs> you should repent at the minimum, right? This is, from, this is from the Presbyterian Journal, 1833. So Finney started getting in trouble around 1827 with these new methods, right? 1833, the, 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 the ones that had brought about this revival that had been preaching through it, they begin to look at what's going on and go, whoa, 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 something crazy is happening here. I want you to read, some, read a couple excerpts from this. Um, 1833, revivals are from heaven. New measures are of the earth. God is the agent in the first, man the contriver of the latter. It has given rise, revivalism, it has given rise to a class of ministers in the church who by way of preeminence are styled revival men. We would call them today evangelists. Inasmuch as they are particularly successful in producing extraordinary excitement, among an audience. These are generally itinerating in their habits, 
and are prepared to go where their services are solicited. They do not, as far as we have seen, occupy even a second rank as intellectual men or as judicious theologians. Let me just stop there for a second. This is key. The guys up till Finney, and Finney, you know, Finney was into abolition, started a lot of really cool stuff. Um, His theology, if you take all the different parts of it, it's really not um, bad in all these different areas. This is the area that I think it just went haywire. But but Finney's not like a horrible guy, right? Okay? Um, And he was pretty smart, studied a lot, didn't go to college, but he studied a lot, later became a a president of a college. Um, but, But there's something really key going on here. And that's this. Before Finney, the, the leaders would be the most intellectually sound, credible, respectable um, preachers and pastors. The word parson, if you, if you think of parson, you know, it's the pastor of, at the center of a city or whatever. That word parson literally meant the person. And back in those days, a long time ago, the pastor was seen as the expert on everything. He had questions of law, he had questions of this, questions of that. You go see the pastor because he was the educated person at the center. He was the parson, the person. If I said to you, a guy traveling through the south right now that's an evangelist, do you immediately think of respect, credibility at an intellectual level, academic level? See, what happened was, what was valued was knowledge. And what became valued after Finney was results and a certain type of giftedness that would get enough people to come down and make a decision to make a decision. Salesmanship. And those people, by and large, were not the best, respect, most respected men kind of at the center. Now, it's fascinating. In the Second Great Awakening, I'll give you a couple statistics. All the, all the denominations grew amazingly. Um, but just between... Just between uh, 1800 and 1810, Baptist denominations went from 95,000 people on their their roll books to 160,000. The Methodists, uh, from 1801 to 1809, increased by 167.8%. I mean, huge jumps in just a couple years, right, in these denominations. But here's what's really interesting. After the 1830s, when revivalism really begins to take root, the denominations which grow the most from it which kind of sync with it the most, are Baptists and Methodists. Later on in the 1900s, the Pentecostal churches. Which two denominations in the 1900s, okay, our immediate, like, history coming into where we're at now, which two denominations were the most anti-intellectual? Baptists and the Pentecostals. We, we had a, a whole wave of Christianity that went because of the preaching and the success and who was respected went a whole direction away from where it had been. And this is huge. I, I'm totally off on a tangent. But you've you got to understand the, the shift that happened here in Christianity. Um, they do not, as far as we see, occupy even a second rank as, rank as intellectual men. On the other hand, their address is popular, earnest, impassioned, and even inflamed directed principally to arouse the feelings, intending but little to convince the judgment through the illumination of the understanding. They're salesmen. Okay? I want to read this big quote.
quote, and then I'll get off of the history stuff for a second. Their address, their addresses, their hymns, and their tunes are all adapted to work upon the feelings of the nervous and the sanguine. Uh, sanguine. Yeah, I don't know how to say that word. Until animal excitability is brought into full play. Other means are employed for the same end. And what you begin to notice here is the end justifies the means in this type of, of preaching and evangelism. As, for instance, they are told that Christians are assembled at a particular place to pray for them by name. The accounts of other revivals, highly colored, are emphatically dwelt upon. Notes from persons of various characters are read, requesting the prayers of the church. Someone is called upon or spontaneously arises to give an account of his or her recent conversion. All of this should sound familiar, by the way. A testimony, a prayer room, praying for you by name. I mean, all of these things should sound very familiar. The officiating minister is sometimes called upon to make a public confession of his unfaithfulness before the congregation, or even to acknowledge his long-practiced hypocrisy by taking a seat among the newly awakened. Prayer meetings are held in places which are rendered gloomy for the sake of effect. What he means by gloomy is the lighting, uh, careful exclusion of the light. Sinners are told, uh, often told that if they do not repent before they leave the house, they will certainly be damned. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Sometimes their pride is appealed to by being informed that men of high public standing and great professional distinction have, at other places, been found on the anxious seats and that it would be honorable to follow their example. And still further, meetings are multiplied and carried far into the night and sometimes prolonged at night until the powers of nature are wasted and nervousness is superinduced, which is not infrequently so extreme as to produce incurable alienation of mind. We're really going to work you up into frenzy to get the results. But others who in ignorance were first deceived will through ignorance remain deceived. And to the end will be able to furnish no better account of their conversion that, 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 than that they once occupied the anxious seat and then united with the church. The nature of personal piety has thus, thus been obscured. And the standard of personal religion has thus been lowered. And although large additions have been made to the numbers of the church, it is seriously to be apprehended that but little addition has been made to its graces. What it's saying here is people that all they know of and understand and all they've experienced is this altar call and have had nothing of what Jesus was talking about in John 6 about radically dying to self and being reborn, born again into Christ where everything thereby changes. The costly grace that, that is Jesus' offering to us, that they remain here, and that's all they know is, I made a decision, I prayed a prayer, and I go to church, and that's kind of all I know. And that's what, 1833, nothing's changed. So I was a youth pastor. I worked before that at a Christian camp. And we were taught, this is the dark side of Christianity that drives me crazy. We were taught, to have the night where the prayer was, and it's at the campfire, and it's this and that. And then kids come forward, because you can make any kid do anything. Really, I mean, seriously, at a junior high level. And the kids coming forward that know nothing of what's going on. And then we're, we're tallying the number. Why? So that we can publish it at the end of the summer, and the donors can see the fruit of the ministry and keep giving. And that poor kid is inoculated. He's walking out going, I guess I'm a Christian. And there's nothing going on in his heart. Nothing. And then I became a youth pastor, and I would take my kids to camps. 
And then here comes the evangelist on a certain night, and I know exactly what's going on. And I have this feeling of, i got to protect my kids from this. It's not an accurate telling of, of, of the gospel. And sometimes, and not always, but sometimes not even by a guy that really gets the gospel. And it's going to confuse them because they're going to hear it and it's in this Christian setting and it's going to come across as credible. And then how do I unpack it and try and bring them back to the words of Christ so that they really understand what this thing means to follow Christ? And so when I got saved at age 22, it was so crazy. I read the, the New Testament. I was talking to a guy this morning, like, man, similar types of experiences. You read the New Testament, all of a sudden you go, wait a second. The, the preaching that I've heard doesn't match up with this at all. I mean, Jesus is radical. I mean, absolutely radical. And, and all I've heard is that I need to pray this prayer or come forward. And it's this awkward, like, moment of realization. You're like, wait, I don't get how these two things are different. And it begins with Finney. Now, the fascinating thing about Finney is, is as it moves on, he begins to say, uh, because the results don't really hold. And even Billy Graham Association, they kept great records. Only 8% of the people that ever, ever went forward at a Billy Graham crusade ever set foot into a church. Only 8% set foot into a church. And Finney begins to see this, and he comes along and says this. He says, you know what? If long-term discipleship is what we're after, then these new methods really probably wouldn't be the best thing we're beginning to see. But since Jesus Christ is coming back in this generation, we, we can't really wait. We, we've got to go right at just decisions and results and multiplication. And we've got to drive revival. And here we are, 160 years later, doing the same methods and seeing the same results, and it goes by a bunch of different names. Cheap grace, easy believism, watered-down Christianity, whatever you want to call it. And, and we're still seeing the effects of it because we don't realize that, man, what, what really is going on here is not the individualism, me, myself, and I, that Americans love so much, or the control of revival and the multiplication of it, but that there's a sovereign God who's got a plan and no matter what we're doing, he's going to work that plan out. And he will always have the number of people following him he, he needs and wants. He's going to take care of that side of it. We have to be faithful to our calling. What's our calling? To pray like mad and to preach faithfully the scriptures. couple verses. Uh, by the way, we're going to get off this just a little bit. Um, if you change the formula, formula, it, it changes the whole thing. I remember, remember that movie, uh, TV show, Facts of Life, way back when, you know? Like, I remember she was making, the, the Italian gal was making these great pizzas, and then she wanted to, like, mass produce it, so she started freezing stuff, and then the pizzas sucked. And it was like, the idea was, if you change the formula, like, you're, what you get is not the same thing. And I think that's kind of what happened when we're trying to control revival, we're no longer talking about the real thing anymore. And if you want to read a book on revival, revivalism, I'll just commend you uh, Ian Murray's work, Revival and Revivalism. He's one of the seminal thinkers on this. 
I would also commend you to read Charles Finney's lectures on revival. Read it for yourself. Um, he's not an evil guy, but just read his, where he's going philosophically, what he's thinking here, okay? Um, but I would just commend you that book. Now, what's changing is our cultural understanding of salvation. A couple verses that get used a lot in revivalist thinking um, are first revelations. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. It's on the bottom of uh, In-N-Out Cups. It's on the bottom of In-N-Out Cups. And what we get from this is this. Let Jesus into your heart. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. You need to decide to let him in. That's a decision to make a decision. What Revelation is talking about is a community that's meeting, and they're not even really giving credence to Jesus where he's at. He's not really a part of their meetings. They're not, they're not really entering in that. It's a social club. And Jesus, in these letters to churches, not to individuals, but to churches, is saying, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door, I'll come into that meeting with you. And I'll transform it. And we made this radically about self. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And what we did was we reversed a pattern in Scripture where Paul over and over says, when we follow Christ, we are then in Christ. We are in Christ. If I'm opening the door to my heart and Christ is coming into me, you see the difference there. Okay, um, the next verse that gets used a lot is this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And what does confess mean to us, especially after we've known nothing but altar calls? It means if you come down to the front here at the altar call and say what I say you should say, that's confessing you're saved right then and there. I can save you right now. Now what Paul is doing is he's writing to the Romans in Rome. And there was this formula, a creed that all Romans had to ascribe to. And it was this, that Julius, uh, or that Caesar, Julius Caesar was earlier, but, but that Caesar is Lord. Kurios, the Greek kurios. That, that Caesar is Lord. And what, what Paul is saying is, in quotes, your creed should be that Jesus is Lord. And that is a public, radical affiliation, not with, with the political power of the day. And on pain of death, realigning yourself with Jesus and saying, I deny that Caesar is Lord, and I affirm that Jesus is Lord. Paul is saying this, you have to be all in, and, and there's this either or, you can't be both, you can only serve one master. Caesar, you're not Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. That's the confession that Paul's talking about. We've reduced that down to, I'm going to say this prayer, and therefore I'm saved. Radical individualism, and it's also a very inward kind of deal. And so anyways, just two quick things. But what we've done is we've flipped it all around. Now here's the, the crazy thing. When I talk about social justice as a pastor, or helping the poor, or giving away your money, What's funny is, those of us that have um, bought into cultural Christianity, it really hits us in the gut. Whoa. Whoa. You're asking a lot there, Pastor. And you're making me feel guilty. I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. And you see why it's uncomfortable? 
is because they have not yet really bought in, but they think they've bought in. I'm asking for just biblical things. Jesus says this, that it should be normal for somebody that's bought in and is following Christ. Jesus is Lord, yet you get this reaction of, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going beyond, I'm already a Christian. I'm already forgiven. God already loves me. I'm going to heaven. Don't you ask for my stuff. Because we've got this easy belief of some Christian, people should already be on the other side of that. Hey, pastor, man, you're asking, you're preaching too light. What's weak sauce? (laughs) Come on and bring it. You're not, your words don't match Jesus' words. And I don't want to come to a church where your words don't match Jesus' words. You better start bringing it. Yet we get this reaction. Why? Cultural Christianity that is bought into this revival view of salvation. It's amazing when you read testimonies from the Great Awakenings on both sides of the Atlantic, in England and in America, and they lay awake at, at night, and you read the journals of these guys, and like, man, am I even saved? God, I've got such hardness of heart. Man, God, I, I have so much self-love and pride. I need your help to, like... Help me with this. And I don't want to give stuff up. And they're like wrestling with this stuff because they understand what it really means to follow Christ. And then you buy into this revival view of Christianity. No one lays awake up at night. I said a prayer. I'm going to heaven. Ipso facto. It's a formula. I said the magic words. It doesn't matter what I do or how much I don't live like a Christian. I've already said the secret formula. God is duty-bound now to accept me because I confessed with my mouth and I'm saved. And nobody now wrestles anymore with the difficulty of really following Christ and becoming Christ-like. Now, look, most of us in this room can, re- can, can trace back our profession to follow Christ to a sinner's prayer. It's the culture that we've grown up in, Okay. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad and valid, whatever, okay? God can use whatever means he wants to use at that time, okay? I'm saying there's a dominant philosophy of ministry that has pervaded now American Christianity. We've completely reversed this understanding of the sovereignty of God and our job to be faithful in the preaching of a certain message. And we've replaced that with a real radical individualism and a sense in which we control the outcomes. And I've seen it, and it's ugly. I don't like it. I want to illustrate to you um, something. I need a volunteer. So I need a volunteer to come up on stage. Here we go. All right. I want to illustrate to you a little bit of what I think Jesus is doing in John 6, because you might be going, Ken, what does this have to do with John 6? Um. I'm going to illustrate this to you. All right, put out your arms. Okay. Under your arm. Under this arm. Under your chin. Okay. Armpit. Okay, right there. Okay. Maybe you can fit that in there. There you go. Good job. Um, Between your legs. Okay. Um... Okay, fully load you up. There you go, dude, good. Okay, Um, that's life, and you're full. 
and you're hungry, you need help, don't you? I mean, do you feel like life's busy, you need some help? Want to, you know, who wouldn't take a genie in the bottle? Seriously, I, I mean, let me just take a time out. If any of you want to help me with this church or with my life, make it easier, I'm not going to turn you down, okay? I could use some help. I think we could all use some help. These people came to Jesus and they said, we need help. We're hungry. Our bellies are hungry. And Jesus says, um, this is who I am. This is all that's important. Okay, you need this. Do you understand that? Okay. No, you did perfect, man. So, <laughs> I think sometimes I preach and people look at me and they say, geez, Ken, you're not giving me anything to do. I mean, it's... Um, you're preaching so whatever, you know, like, I just got to focus on Jesus. My perspective needs to be there, man. How do I really get my arms around that? You know, give me something to do. And it was funny, like, I, in seminary, I took a class on preaching, and I hated it. And, and the only class I ever failed in seminary was a class on evangelism, because the guy was a revivalist. And I, I wouldn't write the papers he wanted me to write. I was immature, whatever. I failed the class. Only class I've ever failed in my life was on evangelism, you know. Kind of, what kind of pastor am I? But in my preaching class, but in my preaching class, I was told a third of your preaching needs to be application, Ken. It needs to be application. Let people look at their lives and tell them what to do. Now, what I began to realize, let's put a verse up here. Um, in 2 Corinthians, listen to this. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul continues, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay? When we're standing here with all our stuff of life, I don't think we need application on how to rearrange our life, even tips on how to have a better marriage as great as it is. What we need to do is see the face of Christ and to understand that so well that we are compelled to drop all and receive only one thing in its stead. My whole idea of preaching is, I just want us to see Christ. I want us to see what God is doing through Christ. I want us to see that that grace, although costly, is free and that we can grab hold of it. And I don't want to mince words. I want to let you know and remind myself and all of us that this trust, this faith, is really, really difficult. It's, it's tough. It has to come down here. You're going to drop it all and get one thing in return. And that one thing better be worth it because you're going to lose everything else. And so we need to come together. We need to encourage each other. We need to join small groups. Why? Why? Because this isn't meant to be done alone. 
We go through periods of doubt. We go through periods of weakness. We go through periods of fear. And we need each other to remind us that this is worth it. That he who promised is faithful. That what we're putting our hope in is sure. And that we can be confident. So this whole idea of application, I'm just, I don't get it. To me, I just, we just want, I want us to, to teach theology and to see God. And the more we see him and his attributes and his goodness and that grows and flowers, the more this stuff looks silly. It says in Matthew, in Matthew, it says, for the pagans run after all this stuff. And your heavenly father knows that you need it. He's a father. He cares. He knows. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, you do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And when we look at Jesus in John 6. And he's like, all these people are leaving. And then in John chapter 7, his own like family's like, man, if you want to be like a an upstart preacher, man. You got to go to Jerusalem, man. You got to be seen. You got to market yourself. You got to be public. Jesus is like, you don't understand it. You don't understand how I work. He does it in John 6. He does it in John 7. The ends do not justify the means for Jesus. Truth and faithfulness to the gospel is what drives Jesus. And he trusts in the sovereignty of God, that God is going to do what God is going to do. And so I titled this message, um, because I'm always told I need to have a title. The title of a book that I really like, I titled it, The Divine Conspiracy. The Divine Conspiracy, because it really is this thing that God is doing that is so contrary to the way we operate, where he's going to trade out the better for the less valuable. And in doing so, we're going to probably get everything thrown in as well. And our faith, the way Augustine said it, and, and, and later Anselm, and our faith is really faith-seeking understanding. We don't get to see, that's what I love about this picture, we don't always get to see what's on the other side. But we see the face of Christ, we see God, and we trust Him. And so we let go. And our faith seeks understanding, and it seeks confirmation. But it's faith first and foremost. And so it's the divine conspiracy. God doing what he's going to do through Jesus Christ and our receiving that, that grace by faith. We've got to understand this stuff because that's, I mean, that's what I mean by authentic Christianity. Because the world looks at us and they see us as used car salesmen. The whole... Um, timeshare salesman deal, right? Nobody's ever happy when they buy a timeshare. You notice that? Well, if we sell Christianity the way people sell timeshares, guess what? Nobody's going to ever be what? Happy with what they receive. And it leads to weird things, and I hate weird Christianity. So this is at the heart of what it means to be authentic, I think. And to go back to Scripture and say, let's preach the way Jesus preached. Let's see the God that Jesus saw. And know that God is sovereign and God will do what he said he would do and is doing 